If you are a guest with us, we are in the midst of a series called The Drama of Redemption and what we're attempting to do, and even for those of you who who aren't guests with us but maybe forgot why we're doing what we're doing, what we are attempting to do is to trace the one single overarching story that, that weaves its way through the entire Bible, God's story of redemption. We're attempting to trace it through the entire Bible in one year, so sometimes we take big steps in the Bible, sometimes we take little steps in the Bible, but if you've been with us for any period of time, you know that we have begun to make our way through the first book of the Bible and now into the second book of the Bible, and this morning we are going to wrap up the second book of the Bible, uh, the book of Exodus, and it looks like many people read ahead and saw that there were about 13 chapters of blueprints of cubits and gold and onyx, about a tent to be built in the wilderness and just decided to sleep this one in. Um, but, which tends to be what happens when we try to read through the Bible and we come to the last half of, of Exodus. But my hope this morning, here, here, let me just tell you, my hope this morning is that in these 13 chapters of cubits and blueprints and work on building a tent in the wilderness, God will do for us what he was doing for Israel back then, and he will help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and off of our own little myopic worlds that we tend to find ourselves so focused on and lift our eyes and our hearts and our souls up to what we were actually created for. That we'd actually get a desire. We would taste a hunger. We would tap into that thing that's inside every single one of us that God put in there that wired us for more than this world. Uh, That's my hope as we go through it this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 25 And as you're doing that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in, and I'm going to start my clock after I pray. Um, I'm going to buy myself those last couple of minutes, uh, because we've got much to do this morning. Uh, Father God, thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together this morning uh, as your people and read your word. And I ask that you would, uh, by your spirit, do what only you can do and help our hearts and our minds and our souls and our spirits to just surrender themselves to your word. Lord, let your word read us and captivate us and challenge us and correct us and convict us, and, but open up our, our, our spirits to, to really who you are and what you created us for. Uh, let us leave this morning with a different picture of what the good life really is and the vision for which we place our lives and all of our efforts and all of our hopes and our desires in. Uh, we ask this, Lord, that in it you would be glorified, you would be made much of, and we would receive much joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, When we last left off, uh, we left Moses up on a mountain in Exodus chapter 24. And, And before we kind of jump into where we left off and where we're going, let me just ask you a few questions. And I want you to take the answers to them and hold on to them. And then we're gonna come back to them in just a minute. So here are the questions. Have you ever wondered why or ever asked yourself why at any moment in your life, your your life seemed to lack a sense of purpose, seemed to lack a sense of meaning? Have you ever felt unfulfilled or disappointed by a promotion, by a new house, by a new friend, by a new toy? And have you ever dreamed at any point in your life, even just wandered off for just a moment, have you ever dreamed of being part of something great, something bigger, then you could get your head around. I want you to hold those thoughts for just a minute. 
We left Moses in Exodus chapter 24, verses 17 and 18. He was on the mountain and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and he went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. What would you imagine that God wanted to communicate to Moses to take back to his people that would take him 40 days and 40 nights up there with Moses to say? I mean, God had just spoken to all of his people. He had just given him his house rules for what it meant to be his people and for him to be their God. He had just clearly said all of that to them, but then he called Moses up on the mountain alone. And he had Moses right there for 40 days and 40 nights. What would be on the tip of God's tongue of primary importance to communicate? Look at chapter 25, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. This is what all of you think religion's about, isn't it? That they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. Again, it's not, not compulsory, it's voluntary. For every man, well, we have whole sermons in here. For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution from me. And the next few verses outline the details of this contribution. But then look down to verse eight. Here's what this contribution is for. Let them make me a sanctuary. Why, God? That I might dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, all of its furniture, so you shall make it. You've got to just think for a second. Just hold on. The God that they have been learning about, the one who created all things out of nothing, this creator God, this redeemer God who redeemed them and rescued them and freed them out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, who parted the sea right in front of their eyes that they could walk across the place where they are now, the God that closed that sea over the Egyptians, over their enemies to protect them and keep them, the God that's led them in the wilderness to this place of worship at the mountain where he is revealing himself to them, this all-powerful creator redeeming God, appearing in thunder and lightning and glory, now wants to dwell amongst them. And now he wants to be with them. I love how Eugene Peterson said it. He said, no longer did God want to appear from time to time to his people. Now God wanted to move into the neighborhood. This creator, redeemer, savior, all-powerful God of thunder and majesty on the mountain. He wanted nearness with his people. He wanted proximity with his people. He wanted relationship with his people. In fact, flip over to chapter 29 and listen to how he says it this way and we'll fill in the middle in just a minute. Chapter 29, verse 45, this is what God says. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now listen to this next word. This next word is so important. He said, I want to dwell amidst my people. I'm going to dwell amidst my people that they shall know that I am God, the one who delivered them, that. Here's why I want to dwell amongst my people, that, that I delivered them, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. According to God's own words right here, one of the primary reasons that God has led Israel out of Egypt, why God has done what he has done so far that we've been tracing, was so that he could dwell with them, so that he could be with them, so that something that was lost, 
Something that we had exchanged for a lie. Something that we were created for and had experienced in the past, God could begin to restore back to his people. This creator God wants to be with his people. And this is a staggering idea. I mean, don't miss the immensity of what God's saying right here. The Bible has declared, and we've seen over and over, and we took so much time in the beginning of the story in Genesis to see that God is so separate from all that he has created. He is holy and he is transcendent. He is not like us. He is not like the rest of his creation. He is totally separate from us, and yet he wants to be with us. He's no absentee deity. He didn't set this thing in motion and throw it off and remove himself from it. No, he created all things and he desires to come near to make himself known. And one of the things that we have to be careful of when we enter into this idea and when we talk about dwelling with God and the relationship we have with God, and we'll see how that comes to fruition in just a little bit, but one of the things that we've got to be very careful with is to never ever think that we deserve this relationship, that we deserve this nearness to God. As soon as we do that, we actually miss how amazing it is that this creator, redeemer, sovereign God wants himself to come and be with us. As soon as we think that we deserve it and are entitled to it, we miss how amazing it is that he in and of himself wants to be with us. I mean, remember from the beginning of the story, he didn't need to create us. He didn't need to actually create us or anything else. He wasn't lonely. For all of eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been absolutely, perfectly satisfied in the relationship that they have together. And since God is all sufficient and possesses in himself everything that is good and wise and true, there's nothing that we have that we have to give him to fill up any void in him. God didn't create us to fill an emptiness in him. Creation was not God's Jerry Maguire moment. We don't complete him. He didn't have to create us. And don't forget, we actually rebelled against this God. Even after he created us, even after he walked with us in the cool of the garden, even as he was providing for us, we exchanged the truth of him for a lie. We rejected him. And because of this, because of this, everyone who has been born since that moment deserves the rejection of this holy and righteous and sovereign God. But now, he wants to draw near to be with his people. So even though he doesn't need us, even though we've rejected him, he still desires to come. He still desires to be near. He still desires to dwell amongst his people, to give himself fully to us, not because we have something to give him, not because we have something to offer him that he doesn't have in himself, but because he has the one thing we need. We need him. He has everything that we need. But for God, To be God and to dwell with us now means he has to dwell with us in the midst of our sin. And yet because he's God and because he's holy and because he's righteous, his holiness can't reside joyfully and fully with his sinful people. And so the next chapters in Exodus, these 13 chapters that all of us tend to skim through when we read, these 13 chapters meticulously describe how God will actually dwell with his people. What it takes for a holy and righteous and good and sovereign redeemer to dwell with sinful people. 
And he's gonna outline this in the details of this thing that we call the tabernacle. We can't take it lightly. We can't take this thing lightly. We need to pause just as the writer pauses and does it in so much detail over and over again because we need to sit and think on the nature of this dwelling that God has for himself. And so as we skim through these chapters, and we're gonna walk through them briefly, we don't have time to to read all of them together, but as we go through these chapters, I I want us to see in, in this, God is reminding us of what we had in the beginning. He's pointing us back to what we had. He's also demonstrating his grace to us in the present. But he's not just leaving us there, he's lifting our eyes and he's lifting our hearts, he's lifting our spirits to the fullness of what he has for us in the end. God's purposes and God's intentions in this tabernacle, even for us right here, right now, exist to call us out of our self-absorbed, self-focused worlds, our myopic visions, our myopic dreams. In this tabernacle for you and I right here in the 21st century, God wants to open up our eyes to what we were actually made for. And as we jump into it, think back to those questions, uh, those moments of disappointment, those desires to be a part of something bigger and desires for something greater, that desire to have a purpose and a sense of meaning. Those desires are good and right. And they're woven into each and every single one of us by God, a desire to be a part of something more, a craving to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, more profound than the day in and day out daily grind that we find ourselves a part of. We weren't created to simply live for ourselves. We weren't created to be satisfied by ourselves and self-satisfaction and self-survival. We weren't created to be satisfied our own, by our own personal and, and small definition of happiness and joy. We were created for so much more. Paul Tripp, one of my favorite writers and pastors, says that God's grace, it cuts a hole in your self-built prison. Just picture, just listen to this imagery. God's grace cuts a hole in your self-built prison and invites you into something so huge, so significant, that only one word in the Bible can adequately capture it. And that word is glory. Honestly, I think there are a lot of us, myself included, who might attend church every week, might attend Bible studies and small groups throughout the week, might give, might know their Bible well, but might not actually live overtly evil or licentious lives. Yet we've settled for something less than we were created for. And we've settled for something less than the glory that we were created for. We've shrunk Christianity down to the size of our own individual lives and grace is sufficient for my marriage and my kids and my life and my job and those are all good things. I'm not denying that but there's, there's more. It's bigger than that. And what's, the, what's the vision that you're living for? I mean what's the big dream that you're investing yourself in? I mean you're putting all the chips on the table for this thing. I mean, what is it that you're giving yourself to fully and completely? I mean, how do you define that good life and what's it look like when you get there? What's it actually resemble? Believe it or not, these 13 chapters of cubits and gold and curtains and goat hair, they call us to something more. They call us something more than our own self-built prisons, our own little self-built kingdoms. 
one way God does it in this tabernacle is by reminding us of his grace in the past. If you remember back in Genesis chapter one, on each day of creation, what, how did we see the record, God's recording of each day of creation start? What did God do? He spoke, didn't he? If you go back to Genesis one, you find God said, and what didn't actually exist obeyed him. No, go fathom that, I wanna go back and think on that more. What didn't exist obeyed him. God said, and it obeyed him. From his word, the word of God, all of creation came into being. Now watch this, Exodus chapter 25, verse one. How does God's description of his dwelling place start? If you've got a pen, go ahead and underline this. We'll have some fun. Exodus 25, chapter one, starts like this. The Lord said. The Lord said. Now look at Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. What do you see there? How does it start? The Lord said. Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. The Lord said. Exodus chapter 30, verse 22. The Lord said. Chapter 30, verse 34, the Lord said. Chapter 31, verse one, the Lord said. Chapter 31, verse 12, what's it say? The Lord said, for all you mathematicians, how many times did God say, the Lord said? Seven. What's that like? What's that remind you of? When did God say something seven times for something to come into existence? At the end of God's seventh saying, God said at creation, what did God do next? He rested. Look at Exodus chapter 31, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord. I sanctify you. Now look down at verse 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. This tabernacle is more than just a tent in the desert. It's a picture of God saying to his people, I'm forming a new creation. I'm forming a new creation, a place for my glory, the glory for which you were created for a place for my glory to dwell with my people. I'm up to restoring something that was lost. There's more to this tabernacle than goat's hair and and cubits and gold and acacia wood. God is restoring what we lost in our sin in the beginning. But at this point, it won't be the perfection that existed in the garden. And sin has destroyed that. But God is going to prescribe how his glory will dwell with his people. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take like a, like a realtor.com. You ever looked for a house on realtor.com? We're going to take like a realtor.com snapshot of this place that God is going to prescribe for his glory to exist in, to dwell in amongst his people in the midst of their sin. We don't have time to unpack it all, but we're just going to walk through it, and then in a few minutes, we're actually going to have a, a guided tour back through it. But here's just a, a snapshot in these chapters of what God is prescribing for his glory to dwell amongst his people. <clears throat> what kind of place would be fit for the glory of God? You would imagine it would be something greater than Buckingham Palace or Taj Mahal, but 
God designed something altogether different for himself. And as we look at the place that God has prescribed and designed for his own glory to be amongst his people, what we've got to be clear on is that the significance of this place has nothing to do with its size. Has nothing to do with how ornate it is. It has everything to do with the one who designed it. The maker of heaven and earth. It has everything to do with the detail with which he crafted it. That's what makes this place significant. And this structure, how God prescribed it, how God designed it, what God wants built, says something significant about how God intends to be with his people. How a holy and righteous God will still dwell amongst sinful and rebellious people. And as you read it, and you'll come to it in your reading in the next couple of weeks, as you read through it, what you'll see is that the tabernacle was not large. It wasn't ornate or it wasn't especially beautiful. It wasn't even a building, it was a tent. A giant tent, if you've ever seen pictures of ancient tents for sheiks and, and dwellers, they had the bigger one. That, this is about what that's like. I don't have pictures for you. Uh, I'll get all distracted with pictures. You have to use your imagination. I like our imaginations. It wasn't a building, it was a tent. It's 15 feet by 45 feet long, divided into two rooms. An outer room, which was called the holy place, and an inner room, which was called the holy of holies, or the most holy place. It was surrounded by a tall fence that enclosed an area that I think, if I did the math right, is about a little more than 10,000 square feet. So about the size of two basketball courts. This fence created a, a courtyard outside of the tabernacle where there was a bronze altar for making sacrifices and a bronze basin for ceremonial washing. You can read about that court and that sacrificial altar in chapter 27. We won't spend a lot of time in there. But here's what I want you to note as we begin to go through it more specifically in 25 and 26. When God designs the blueprint for the place that he's going to dwell, he doesn't do it the way you and I do it. God doesn't start with the outer structure and work his way into the furnishing. God actually starts by his prescription and the detail of the place where his glory will dwell. He describes it from the inside out. Something to note the way God works with his people. A whole nother time to unpack that in the bigger picture of scripture. But God actually starts from the inside out. And here's what you see in chapter 25, and we'll make our way through it. The first thing that God actually describes as he lays out this blueprint is the Ark of the Covenant. God begins with the most important piece of furniture that would be at the heart of this tabernacle. I mean, why would God, I mean, seriously, why, why would God begin this grand design and this grand blueprint for the place where his glory is going to dwell by giving instructions for a rectangular box a little bit smaller by four feet by three feet? I mean, why actually start there? You think back to last week's sermon and Ray did such a wonderful job introducing us to the Ark of the Covenant. God starts here because it's the most important thing in the entire tabernacle. This Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, is going to be the exact place where the glory of God will descend and dwell with his people. This is going to be the glory of God, God's earthly throne. Now when you look at this tabernacle, and we'll look at it a little more specifically, Ray started the picture last week, we'll kind of finish the picture this week, we won't go into as much detail with the rest of the furniture, but we will with the ark because it's the first and it's the most important. If you remember, there was something on the inside of the ark and something on the top of the ark from Ray's description last week. On the top of the ark, there were two cherubim that were sculpted of gold on top of the lid. The presence of God that will descend and where his glory will dwell on the throne, on this ark, is guarded by two cherubim. If you remember, what what happened at the end of Genesis chapter three? 
God removed Adam and Eve from the garden, the place where his glory had dwelled in the beginning where they lived with God and walked with God and all of life of worship to God and satisfaction in God and the presence of the glory of God was there. When God had to remove Adam and Eve from that place, what, what happened? Do you remember? God put two cherubim guarding the entrance from the east back into the garden. Now God is saying right here in the midst of where my glory is going to dwell, here are these two cherubim. I'm, I'm going to dwell. My presence is going to come back to be with my people. But the space above the cherubim was empty because it was said and the people believed that this was the place where the glory of God descended and dwelled. Inside the ark was what? You remember? The Ten Commandments written on stone tablets by the finger of God. But what did the Ten Commandments do? They simply expose Israel's sin, Israel's sinfulness to people of God's rebellion. See, if God were to interact with his people based solely upon his law, we'd be condemned. We'd be doing nothing, nothing but God's just wrath. This is why when God wrote out the blueprints for his tabernacle, and in particular the Ark of the Covenant, the most important thing in the tabernacle, the place where his glory would come and dwell, God prescribed something to go between his presence on the throne and his law within the Ark. Between the Ten Commandments in the Ark and God's presence on top of the Ark was the atonement cover or the mercy seat, the place where mercy dwelled. This place, this atonement cover symbolized the source and and the place from which God would show mercy to sinful people. But even in of itself, the mercy seat, the atonement cover on which those gold cherubim were placed wasn't enough in and of itself. Something else ultimately had to go on top of that. That atonement cover, that mercy seat that sat over the Ten Commandments, the law of God, had to be sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice. And once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and sprinkle the blood of an animal sacrifice on the mercy seat. And if he made it out alive, he demonstrated that God's wrath and God's, hmm, God's justice have been appeased for another year. This is, this is what was going on here in this ark. Philip Ryken, great scholar and pastor, he said that in this design, in this way, when God came down to dwell with his people, he would not see, first of all, the law they had broken, but the saving blood of an atoning sacrifice. This is how God starts to describe the place where he's gonna dwell amongst his people with the place of his mercy. The place of his law, but the place of his grace, just like Ray talked about last week. I won't keep going into that. But from there, we move out of the Holy of Holies and into that second place, that holy place. Outside of the most holy place was the holy place. And there were three pieces of furniture in there, the table for the bread of presence, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. And we'll read about these as we go through really briefly, and I'll watch the clock so that we don't spend too much time on them. But the table of the bread of presence, God begins to describe this next piece of furniture. The table is about the size of a, of a common coffee table. Again, if I did my math right, I think it's about three feet long and one and a half feet wide and less than three feet tall. And what was really important about this table was not the table itself, but what was actually on it. The bread of presence. 12 loaves of sacred bread, as well as various plates and dishes and pitchers and bowls. And why was the bread there? What was so important about this bread? Was it like cookies for Santa? Leave him out, takes a nibble, you know he was there. It's probably not gonna be coal in your stocking. Was, were we leaving God bread to nibble on so that we know he was actually there? No, no, I hope you know that's not true. 
No, that's not what the bread of presence was actually for. No, the, the bread of presence was not there to meet some need in God. God wasn't hungry when he came down. We didn't have to feed him special bread. The bread of the presence symbolized our need for him to sustain us. The, the bread of presence symbolized our need for God. 12 loaves of bread to be eaten by the priest and then replaced weekly served as a reminder of God's promise to provide for and to sustain his people, the 12 tribes of Israel. It it whispered every single day of God's consistency to his promise to sustain his people, his constant awareness of the needs of his people. It, It spoke not only that God will provide provision but that he's always aware of it but ultimately that he's the substance of what we really need. This is what was going on in this. I wish we had more time to go through it, but we don't. The other piece of furniture that was in there was the golden lampstand. Now, the tabernacle was a tent, right? It wasn't a building, it was a tent. It was four layers thick. We'll read about those curtains in just a minute, but there were four layers of curtains on this tabernacle. It had an inner lining that was made of linen, which was covered with cloth from goat's hair, and that was covered with ram skins, and then over the top of that, if I get this right, was a waterproof tarp made from the hides of sea cows. Chapter 26, we'll get there in a minute. Underneath all those layers, it's probably pretty dark. You can imagine there wasn't much light getting through all of that. Probably sea cow hides alone would stop that. But four layers of curtain, four layers covering this tent. So it was probably dark in there. So very practically, the lampstand was there to provide light for the priests to be able to go about their duties, to do what they needed to do, to see what they were doing, to do the things that they were supposed to do. But there's more there, just like everything in the tabernacle. It has a practical purpose, but it points to something else. And you can begin to see what it points to when you look briefly at the instructions God gave for its construction. Look at this, chapter 25, verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold, The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. There shall be six, look at this word, branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out on one side and three branches of the lampstand out on the other side. You shall make seven lamps for it and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it and see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown to you on the mountain. The lampstand was made in the shape of a tree. And that tree was to echo the tree in the garden, the tree of life that God had given his people in Eden. And from the beginning, it showed them from the day they began to build this tabernacle according to God's word, it showed them that as we approach God, we're coming into the light that God alone is the source of life and light and that anywhere apart from him ultimately is utter darkness. This is what that lampstand would point them to every single day of their life with this tabernacle. But there's more, we gotta keep going. The third piece of furniture out there in the holy place was the altar of incense. Now, the small altar of incense, you actually see it in chapter 30. It's not kind of an order here, it's, but it's in this holy place. The altar of incense was in the middle of the holy place, directly in front of the Ark of the Covenant, with a thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. So remember, there were two compartments in the tabernacle, a curtain separating them, the Ark of the Covenant and the most holy place, directly across from that, but with a curtain in between them was this altar of incense. Um, and every single day, the priest would burn incense on this altar. Each morning and evening, the priest 
priest would offer incense on the golden altar, and in a sense, he was approaching the mercy seat. It was like he was approaching the, the presence of God. Remember, he was separated by that curtain, though. He couldn't go into the most holy place except once a year, but every single day when he went to this altar of incense, right on the other side of that Ark of Covenant, it was as though he was approaching the dwelling place of God, the throne of grace, where God answers the prayers of his people, and here is where the priest would offer up prayers in the place of his people. This is what God is prescribing for his people. But chapter 26, again, we're gonna be brief. You get a picture of this tabernacle structure in and of itself. The curtains and the layers that make up this tabernacle. Chapter 26, the entire chapter, you learn about the various layers of the tent that house the holy place and the most holy place. But all those instructions and all those details, linen and goat hair and sea cow and wood and gold and, and poles and hooks and all the instructions, all the cubits, all the things, they come down to these instructions for the curtain that would separate the two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. And listen to what God said here. So make a special curtain of finely woven linen. This is in verses 31 through 33. Decorate it with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and with skillfully embroidered, embroidered cherubim. Hang this curtain on gold hooks attached to four posts of acacia wood. Overlay the posts with gold and set them in four silver bases. Hang this inner curtain from clasps and put the Ark of the Covenant in the room behind it. This curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Imagine yourself a priest, one that could go into this holy place. Now, imagine that you were there and the lamp was on and the light was in the room and you stood in the tabernacle and you looked straight ahead at this curtain that separated you from the place where the glory of God dwelled. What would you see? What, what was woven into this curtain that separated the place where the, people could, where the priest could go from the place where the glory of God dwelled? You'd see this curtain with a deep blue and scarlet background with cherubim and broidered on it looking like they were fly, suspended in midair, like they were flying. This tabernacle, this curtain, this place that separated the holy place and the most holy place, it, it was meant to take them somewhere. It was meant to remind them of something. It was a vivid portrayal ultimately of heaven, the place where God dwelled. It was meant to remind them of the glory of God. It pointed them back to the place in the garden when God walked with his people, when we dwelled with his glory, when he lived amongst his people. And it pointed forward to a day when God would ultimately come and would dwell with his people in the intimacy that we had once enjoyed in the garden, but right now because of sin we couldn't. Every time the priest went in there, he was reminded of the glory of God and the presence of God, the time in which we had it in the garden, the promise of God of when we'll have it fully to come, but reminded because of the curtain that's not quite there yet. This is what God is prescribing. Chapter 27, you get the details about the bronze altar for sacrifice, um, where the sacrifices for sin were, altered, were offered. Uh, but here's what I want us to do. Flip over to chapter 40. Chapters 35 through 40 describe in detail how Moses and the people of God took up the contribution that God had required and then built this tabernacle and all these furnishings exactly as God has prescribed. So you just get the same thing said again, except build this becomes, and they did, all right? So we're not gonna go through those chapters in detail because 
They're just a repeat of what we just looked over really quickly. But you get to the end, and here's what happens. We come to the end of Exodus in chapter 40. You find that Moses actually did what God had said. The people had built the tabernacle. You find in verse 33 that they erected the tabernacle. It came up. It was built. In verse 34, here's what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Back in chapter 24, Moses was up on the mountain in the presence of the glory of God and a cloud covered the mountain. The glory of God had descended upon the mountain in clouds and there was thunder and there was lightning. You remember the big scene. This cloud now descends to cover this tent and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that must have been like? Yeah. I want to imagine, and maybe I believe that God will show us all this one day in heaven. I really hope he does. I hope we get to see how it all played out. But I don't imagine that you could look up on the mountain and the glory of the Lord was on the mountain, the cloud was on the mountain, and the presence of God was there. Then it was gone and then it was here. I imagine there was a movement from the mountain to the tent. There was something tactile and human about watching the glory of God descend to be with his people to now fill this tent that he had prescribed, that people had built for his glory to dwell amongst them. Just imagine that scene. Then in verse 35, we read this. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was in their midst, but not even Moses could go in. Can you imagine that? God, this glorious creator, redeemer, sustainer who had provided, who brings him to this place, I wanna be with you. Build this so I can dwell amongst you and you build it and he comes and then you can't, you can't go in. And everything about the tabernacle in some way or another just screamed to somebody, don't enter. Men were allowed to go into one place, women were only allowed to go into another place. Only one priest was allowed once a year to go into the most holy of places. Entire priests would live their life serving God and serving his people, only allowed to go into one aspect of the tabernacle. Only one priest, once a year, could go into the most holy place. And the Talmud, a Jewish historical writing that goes along with the Old Testament, says, and whether we know it's true or not, I'm not sure, that that curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy of places, where the high priest had to go through to get to the Ark of the Covenant, was so heavy it took 100 priests to move it. Everything about this thing screamed, don't enter. There's still a separation between the glory of God and God's people. And do, do you think that at any point, day in and day out, the Israelites, in obedience to God's commands, in obedience to God's word, and offering their sacrifices, do you ever think they stood outside that tent and began to wonder if maybe this was just a shadow of something bigger? And when he said that he'll be our God and we'll be his people and he wants to dwell amongst us and we, we know that in the beginning, we've learned that in the beginning that presence of God with his people was different than this. Do you think that maybe there's more? Is there more to this? Yeah, I mean imagine just how beautiful it was and amazing it was every single day to look over at the tabernacle and by day to see the cloud of God and the glory of God on the tabernacle and at night to see the fire of God on the tabernacle and to look and every single day know that God is with you. He's right there with you. He's leading you. He's guiding you. He's fulfilling his promise to you. That's amazing and that's beautiful. But do you ever just wonder if maybe they thought, is there more? Is there, is there ever going to be a mediator that will be the final high priest? Is there ever going to be a sacrifice good enough? Are we ever going to get to the end of this thing? 
so that we can be with him and he can be with us like it was in the beginning. Is there, is there more? The tabernacle, God's prescription for the place where his glory was to dwell, was to stir in God's people a reminder of what they had, to stir in God's people that desire for, for what they were created for, to stir in God's people that thing that says this isn't enough. This around us, this, this isn't enough. There, there's more. I want him. I want to be with him. This is the way it was supposed to be. It was to stir that up. It was also to remind God's people then and to remind us now of God's grace to us even in the present. And this is where looking at the tabernacle actually gets even more exciting for us because we're on the other side of this story. This is where we get to look forward that they only got to imagine, they only only got to hope for, that they only got to dream about. We actually get to look back and see. The tabernacle looks back to the beginning when God's glory dwelled with man in a way that none of us have yet to experience. But where did the glory of God dwell in the New Testament? What did this thing begin to point towards? What was at work in God's grace even in the present? John, in his gospel, he said this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word that John used when he said, the glory of God, the word of God has dwelt among us, that's the Greek word for setting up a tabernacle. He was saying that Jesus, the glory of God, became flesh and now tabernacled among God's people. No Jewish person reading what John wrote missed what he was saying. No one failed to grasp what was being said by John right there. They understood that God's glory dwelt in the tabernacle. That was the place where the glory of God descended to be with God's people. That was the place where the glory of God hovered over the mercy seat, over the law of God. They knew that. And John says the glory of God has now tabernacled among us, not in the tabernacle itself or the temple, but in the person of Jesus Christ. He's saying if you want the glory of God, you long for the glory of God, look no further than the person of Jesus. The high priest only got to enter the most holy place once a year to see the glory of God. Once a year with a sacrifice of blood to be in the presence of the glory of God. Now that glory has come and is tabernacling amongst God's people walking amongst the streets of Jerusalem. If you want to see the glory of God, John's saying, just look at Jesus. He's God in the flesh, the glory of God, the glory of Christ. He's the tabernacle. Now, let me give you a more detailed look at that tabernacle. We got the realer.com pictures. Let's actually get a tour. And sometimes you read things that you realize as a speaker and as a preacher, you just can't say as well as somebody else. You find that somebody said something, you go, you know what, no matter how hard I try, I'm never gonna say it as well as they did. So listen to this. Let's let Jesus take us on a tour of the tabernacle. I love this. This was written by a woman named Nancy Guthrie. Uh, She's one of my favorite, favorite Bible teachers and writers. Just listen to this. Imagine if Jesus himself were now to take us on a tour of the tabernacle, showing how he was the substance that cast the tabernacle shadow. Would we see, we would see that everything about the tabernacle pointed to some aspect of who he is and what he's done. And that in fact, the tabernacle actually in and of itself had no meaning apart from him. Now just close your eyes and imagine this. 
when he took us through the courtyard, perhaps he would point to the bronze altar and say that when he offered himself as a perfect once for all sacrifice, he put an end to the sacrifices of bulls and goats, which had never had the power to cleanse the conscience or take away sin. Perhaps he'd point to the bronze basin and say that we need to no longer wash ourselves to come into God's presence for he has cleansed us with the only cleansing agent that can wash away the stain of sin and purify our conscience, his own blood. As Jesus entered into the holy place and took us with him, perhaps he'd point toward the lampstand and say that I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Perhaps he'd point to the table, the bread of presence, and say for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my own body. Perhaps he'd point to that altar of incense and he'd say that he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. For hundreds of years, the curtain hung in the tabernacle and then in the temple for generations of priests to see as they ministered at the table in the golden altar. It told them every day that the way to approach God was not yet made known. And yet because the curtain was made of fabric and not stone or metal, it obviously communicated that it was temporary. One day a way of access into the presence of God would be revealed. Matthew tells the dramatic story of when the curtain was finally opened. It happened on the day that Jesus hung on the cross when Jesus shouted out again and he released his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary, the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so in giving us a tour of the tabernacle, surely Jesus would point to the torn curtain and say, now you can have confidence to enter the holy places by my blood, by the new and living way that I opened up for you through the curtain that is through my own body. And the cross of Christ is our mercy seat. It's a dwelling place where the blood of an atoning sacrifice reconciled us to God by coming between God's holiness and our law breaking. As we entered the most holy place with Jesus, perhaps he would point to the mercy seat covered in his own blood and say, I entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of my own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for my people. This is love, not that you love God, but that I loved you. And God sent me as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. Perhaps Jesus could go on and point out to us the tabernacle was outwardly humble and unattractive. Just as the prophet Isaiah had said about him, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Perhaps he would help us to see that the tabernacle is at the center of Israel's camp, a gathering place for God's people. And he turned to us and say, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. Surely he'd help us to see that his death was a means to an end. And that end is what God states again and again throughout the Old and New Testaments. I will be your God and you will be my people. As good as that is, it doesn't stop there. When Jesus rose from the grave, he ultimately ascended to the right hand of God. He left the earth. Does that mean that the presence of God dwelling with his people was gone as well? Does that mean because Jesus ascended into heaven, now the dwelling place with God is gone? No. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he poured out the spirit of God, his own presence of God amongst his people. And now the dwelling place of God is what? It's what? It's you and I. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he puts his spirit in us and we become a dwelling place of God. The apostle Paul actually told the church in Corinth, do you not know brothers that you yourselves are God's temple? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit 
The place where the spirit and the presence and the glory of God dwells is in you. We possess the presence of God as God's people. I just sit back and wonder at the amazement of this and the seriousness of it. I mean, God help us, help us, help us to stand in awe of this reality, but at the same time, help us to understand the seriousness of it as well. We possess the presence of God and in this, we reflect the glory of God to a watching world. When the people of God would move from place to place as the spirit of God led them, they would pick up that tabernacle and they would take it. And everywhere they went, they were being led by the spirit of God. When the cloud moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. But everywhere they went, the peoples that were already there would see them coming and they would recognize that the presence of God was with them. This is ultimately what makes God's people distinct. Ray started talking about this last week, but here is the final kicker. What makes the people of God distinct from the watching world or from the people around them is that the presence of God is with them. Everywhere they went, nations would see that the presence of God was with these people, not only with them, but in the middle of them, leading them and guiding them, and the same is true for you and I. Think of the wonder of this. The the presence of God is in the people of God. What a privilege to think that every time we scatter, everywhere we go as God's people, The presence, the glory of God is in us and going with us and we're taking it everywhere we go. What makes us distinct is the fact that God is with us in every home, every school, every workplace, the presence of God is there in us and it's to be reflected to a watching world. We saturate this earth, this city, with the presence of the glory of God. Where we go, it goes. I had more time to talk about this, but let me encourage you to guard this holiness, to guard this glory. It's a very serious thing, but as sweet as it is, it's still incomplete. This tabernacle, this story of tents in the wilderness, doesn't just remind us of the past and doesn't just demonstrate grace in the present. It points us forward as what we were made for. Let me end with this. Revelation chapter 21, verse one. Just listen to this. John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The people of God will one day gather around the throne of God and he will be our God and we will be his people and there will be no barriers. Nothing between us, no sin to separate us, no symbols to look to, only us and only God will approach God face to face. No mediators. No one person who can go in once a year, but we can be there day after day for all of eternity. And on that day, there will be no need for any bronze altar for offering. The lamb who was slain, the fully sufficient sacrificial lamb for sin will be sitting on the throne and will be singing in his face, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive the power and the wealth and the wisdom and the might and the honor and the glory and the blessing. There will be no need for a a wash basin 
Everyone gathered around the throne of God will be saved. That all of our robes have been washed and made white in the blood of the lamb. There will be no need for the table of the bread of presence. Jesus will have fulfilled his promise to anyone and everyone who has heard his voice and opened the door and said, come in, eat with him and be with me. No need for a golden lampstand. No need for a symbol anymore. No need for a sun, no need for a moon. Listen to what Revelation says. For the glory of God gives light. And its lamp is the lamb, is Jesus. There will be no curtain that will separate us from the presence of God. We'll be close enough to see his face, close enough that he'll reach out and wipe away every tear from our eye. Everything the tabernacle pointed back to, everything that the tabernacle demonstrated in the present will ultimately one day come to a fullness and reality for all of eternity. Finally, we'll be with God forever the way he intended. There will be no more relating, no more relationship from a distance. All of our faith will actually become sight. This is what you and I were made to live for. This is the big dream that God calls us to invest ourselves in, to put all of our chips in. This is the thing that's to define our waking up and our going to sleep. This is a picture of what the good life really is. And this is for everyone who admits that they've sinned against God. It's for everyone who admits that the eternal God is just in pouring out his wrath on you for your sin. It's for everyone who actually believes that Jesus paid the price for your sin in your place and paid the penalty that you deserve for your sin. This is for everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. God promises to forgive, he promises to cleanse, and although we deserve to die because of our sin, God's gift to each and every single one of us who believes is eternal life in his presence. That's what we were made for. And how amazing. Though he's holy, he's come to dwell with us in Jesus. And through Jesus, provide a way for us to dwell with him forever. Please don't shrink Christianity down to the size of your own individual life. Your own individual day in and day out. You were made by God for so much more. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you are not a God vast and mighty, far off and distant. And you desire to be with us more than our weakest desire to be with you. And you've made a way for us to spend not only our our current days, but our eternity in your presence with fullness of joy. I would ask that you would stir in each and every single one of us a desire for more, a desire for eternity, something that becomes a holy dissatisfaction with our present, but wants you, wants more of you, wants your glory. I would ask this, that you would conform us in this uh, to people who reflect a satisfaction in you. For your name's sake, amen.